At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Better make your peace with your Jesus, fellows, before you go up there. A 37th Division doughboy to Private Horace Baker and his comrades of M Company, 128th Infantry Regiment, 32nd Red Arrow Division, AEF, 5th Corps Sector, Meurs Argonne, October 3rd, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 78, At a Stiff Price. Shoutouts this episode go to new Patreon patrons Jeff and Mark. Both of these gentlemen will have early access to all new episodes, as well as access to other episodes not yet released to the general public. Folks on Patreon and elsewhere... If you haven't already seen, the next patrons-only episodes will be on the Second Battle of the Marne. I look forward to looking at that monumental battle from as many sides as possible. That was a really uh, international engagement. Folks, I'll, I'll keep the pitch short this time. Patreon, you know what it's about and how it supports the show. The link is patreon.com backslash battles of the first world war podcast. Uh, You will not be charged until a new episode is released and support starts at a dollar us as little as a dollar folks. Second admin note is that recently I was invited onto Matt Dixon's excellent podcast footsteps of the fallen where he and I did one of his Trench Talks episodes. For about an hour, we talked all things AEF and the American experience in World War I. The episode is called The Doughboys with Mike Cunha, but really, Matt's episodes are just phenomenal. The level of knowledge Matt has is stunning. Join him on his episodes for long audio walks through parts known and unknown on the Western Front. The really awesome thing is that he branches out and covers all sectors of the old front line, from the Brits to the French to the American. 
Don't miss out, folks. Links to Footsteps of the Fallen are in the episode notes. The last admin note I have for now is that Rob and I are relaunching our Merzargon tour for summer 2022. Now's the time to do it, folks. Things are still complicated with regards to COVID, but we are continuously monitoring the situation. The trip is from July 24th through the 30th, 2022. We give you a time frame to arrive at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, and we will pick you up. We do not book the flight for you, as these days many people can get fantastic deals all by themselves, deals we couldn't meet. We can help you if needs be, though. Once we pick you up at CDG, everything is up to us, and we will shepherd you around, providing lodging and meals, and take you to places that will leave you fully satisfied with your experience. Locations we will visit on this tour include, but are far from limited to, Valcoa Hill and the 35th Division area, Montfaucon, Hill 285, and Le Chentendu in the Argonne, the Crown Prince's Bunker Complex, the German War Cemetery in the Apremont, Gênes on Argonne, Exermont, the complete Sergeant York Walk, including both suspected sites of action, and Châtel-Cherie, Binaville, and a complete tour of the Lost Battalion site, including both entrapment sites, the Meurs-Argonne American Cemetery, site of Sergeant Henry Gunter's death, the last U.S. service member killed in action, a day of exploring the battlefield and town of Verdun, and so much more. We are also able to include special requests in case there is something important to you that you would like to see. You will stay in a comfortable French hotel in the Argonne. Note that rooms are for multiple guests. You will be assigned sleeping arrangements based on how many in your party, if in multiples, against first-come, first-served couples. We try to be as fair as possible to accommodate requests, needs, if possible. It is not possible to provide each person their own room. You will have a traditional French breakfast at the hotel each morning, lunch in the field or at a local cafe, and dinner at any number of great places in the Argonne. And yes, we even know where to get American comfort food, if needs be. And it's all right. At the end, we will bring you back to CDG on the 30th to fly out, satisfied with your trip. You get all of this for just $1,500 per guest single or $1,200 per guest in parties of two or more. Again, this price does not include airfare, which you must provide yourself. All we require for you to reserve a spot on this fabulous trip is a non-refundable $300 deposit. After that, we can work up payments with you, and yes, we do offer an easy payment plan. So, Thought a trip to France to see your dreamed-of American World War I battlefield sites was out of reach. Not so. We specialize in making your dream come true, led by two World War I super geeks. However, space is limited. We have room for just 12 guests on this trip, and slots are going to fill up fast. So don't delay. Book your spot today. Contact us at Lost Battalion Tours on Facebook or 
email us at lostbattaliontours at gmail.com. Robert J. Laplander and I are anxious to meet you and get your dream trip underway. We are along the road parallel 276.4, and we're waiting for you. Let us know, folks. All right. With that, let's get back to the front. In the center of the AEF's 1st Army line was the 5th Corps, commanded by Major General George Cameron. The Corps' frontline divisions were the 32nd and the 3rd, both veteran divisions that had been gutted and bled out during the terrible battles of the summer just past. 5th Corps was to seize the Romagna Heights ahead of it, and the divisions were to attack on either side of Romagna sous Montfaucon. The 32nd Division was to attack on the left, taking the village of Gênes en Argonne and the heights west of Romagna village, a mile further up. 3rd Division was to assist the neighboring 3rd Corps with taking the Bois de Zogon, Bois de Cunel, and the heights to the east of Romagna, two miles away. Having taken over for the 91st and 37th Divisions, the Michigan and Wisconsin National Guard and draftee doughboys of the 32nd Red Arrow Division hurried to make themselves as ready as they could for the next fight. The division, named the Red Arrow for its symbol, had also earned the nickname Les Terribles from none other than that psychopathic tiger, French General Charles Mongin, for its performance in the Enmarne Offensive. The Red Arrows had gained invaluable fighting experience there, but the division had hemorrhaged some 3,800 doughboys as it helped eliminate the German Marne salient. The 32nd then was pushed through the Wazan Offensive, where another 2,800 men joined the ranks of the wounded, missing, and fallen. Entering the line now in the Meuse-Argonne, the 32nd's ranks had refilled with raw recruits, many of whom were barely trained enough to be out on the battlefield. Despite the men of the 32nd working their hardest to relieve the men of the worn-out 91st Division and get themselves ready to jump off, everything was against them. Attack times were issued in the hopes that the doughboys would be ready in time. Divisional artillery assets were constantly being reassigned from one division to another, so while there was a barrage in the attack plan, it was unknown if the division's guns were available to fire it. Captain Paul Schmidt commanded a company in the 127th Infantry Regiment on the division's left front. As he heard guns boom in the distance, he began running around getting his men up. They were to follow the rolling barrage as it scourged the earth ahead of them. Only, the landing shells kept getting closer. It wasn't an American barrage. It was the German counter-barrage against the attacking Americans. Two French tank officers came through the shellfire to coordinate with Schmidt. He told them they were about to go over the top. The Frenchmen stared back at him blankly and didn't move. Schmidt ordered his troops forward anyway. 
No preparatory barrage. No supporting tanks. Incoming enemy shells. Gen Village had been worked into the defenses of the toughest German defense line, the third one known in the Meuse front as the Kriemhilde. As Schmidt and his troops ran towards Gen, the sun broke through the morning mist. German machine guns opened a merciless fire on the doughboys. Bullets tore into the bodies of the oncoming Americans as they pitched forward. Men crumpled and died. Others screamed out as hot pokers of fire stabbed into their flesh. Schmidt and his remaining soldiers made it to an embankment to the west of Gen, along what is today the D-221 road between Gen and Sierge. Men of the 128th Infantry came up, having gone through the same gauntlet of fire south of the village. German machine gun fire and artillery raked the embankment, killing and wounding doughboys by the score. The captain ordered his men through the smoking ruins of Gen, where they ran over the corpses of Wild West Division men slaughtered days earlier. Northeast of the village, Schmidt had his remaining troops dig in on a ridge as shells wailed and crashed into them. He and his men stayed there through the evening and into the night. On it went, along the division's front line. To the right of the 32nd, the 3rd Division's 7th Infantry took up the left of the veteran division's front as it prepared to assault Hill 253 to the northeast of Sierre's village. On the division's right, the 4th Infantry would attack the Bois de Cunel in that triangle of woods north of Nantiwa. The 3rd Division was a veteran division, famous for having held the Germans back at Chateau Thierry and known as the Marne Division. Even today, the 3rd Division is still known as the Rock of the Marne. The men of the 7th Infantry arrived late, with only one company jumping off on time. The others quick-marched their way onto the battlefield and then deployed directly into the attack. Heavy machine gun and artillery fire cut into them. The advancing soldiers made it to a bridge on the Sierra's Romagna Road, just a kilometer south of the latter village. The Americans called for artillery and reinforcements, but after making it onto Hill 253, the doughboys had to pull back. German fire from the hill was simply too heavy to stay where they were. On their right, the battalions of the 4th Infantry charged forward towards the Bois de Cunel, supported by the French 15th Tank Battalion. Just northwest of Nantiwa, there was a hill 268 with woods on its summit. As the troops of the 4th went over the top, they ran into terrific enemy artillery fire. Hill 268 was largely undefended, so it was taken. From there, the Americans assaulted towards Hill 250. In the fields south of that hill, the Germans unleashed a maelstrom of shells and machine gun bullets, such that no further advance was possible. The French tanks creaked and clanked on ahead, and they went around Hill 250. Once out of American sight, but in the sights of the German guns, the tanks were all knocked out. Casualties that day were heavy. Private John Lewis Barkley of the 3rd Battalion, 4th Infantry, noted that, quote, We kept gaining ground, 
but always at a stiff price. The new men were suffering most. They tried to hurry things too much. The old-timers had learned how to go slow and make their fire count. There was a lot of bayonet fighting. End quote. Fifth Corps ordered the same objectives be attacked the next day, October 5th. In the 32nd Division sector, the 128th Infantry's battalions were called forward for support, and Private Horace Baker found himself headed toward the front line at long last. A native of Greenwood Springs, Mississippi, Baker was a schoolteacher turned soldier. He had been assigned to the 39th Delta Division, but upon arrival in France, that unit had been converted into a depot division, with its men being reassigned as replacements. Baker had been assigned to Company M, 3rd Battalion, 128th Infantry Regiment. Even in late September, when he joined the unit, Baker wrote in his memoir, Argonne Days in World War I, that it was still recovering from the heavy fighting of July and August. On October 5th, the 127th Infantry shifted left and attacked into the Bois de la Morraine and Bois du Chêne Sec, two conjoined woods immediately west of Gênes. The doughboys there attacked into the woods and reached the northern edge of Chêne Sec, from which they could advance no further. On the 32nd Division's right, the 126th Infantry attacked but made only small gains throughout the day. Gênes was nominally in American hands, being part of the outpost line. Horace Baker's Company M was called forward with the rest of the 128th Infantry, and the companies of the two regiments became intermixed in and about the front line. Alternately, an acting corporal or a private, Baker wrote cryptic lines in his pocket New Testament as the outlines of a diary. After the war, while on occupation duty in Germany, he used the lines to refresh his memory and composed much of what would become his memoir, Argonne Days. In it, he spoke of when his company went up to the front line. Baker was a big fan of correct speech, as he was a school teacher. Man after my own heart. His memoir is written in a diction not really heard much today. So, quote, At dawn, nay, God's light was resplendent even when we betook ourselves to the ravine and deployed up and down it. I stopped a moment to speak to Hughes, and Flynn, our platoon sergeant, came along and put me on guard. There was no firing, and everything in our sector was as quiet as the grave. I noticed that Flynn gave me my orders in a whisper. This put me to studying, and I asked him, Where is the front line? and added, as the thought struck me, Is this it? He answered, Yes. And a moment later, The Germans are probably just over the hill, which was 150 yards away. Shortly, Steen, my corporal, called me and directed me to shift up the gully to my own squad. So another guard was placed, and I went to my proper place, where I helped hold the line for two days. This ravine that served for a front-line trench was about ten feet wide and five deep. It was not straight at this particular place, but was nearly so. Where I was, the bottom was dry, but in the platoon area there was a good spring, and below it, of course, a small brooklet. 
Back of us rose a steep bluff from the ravine to the height of fifty feet, and it was well wooded. In front of us was a slight fringe of trees down the bank of the ditch, and beyond was an open field sloping up gracefully and uniformly to the crest of the low ridge one hundred and fifty yards away where there were a few pines and other bushes. Just back of those we imagined the Germans to be. In the background could be seen a higher hill. As regards military matters, I will say that this position we occupied was the right side of the salient that may be seen on a battle map of that day just to the west of Gênes. A day or two previous, the 91st Division had been withdrawn from this area and after our stay of two days returned to relieve us. My, how still that Sunday morning was. Only desultory firing at a distance told of war still in progress. Conversation was scanty, and then in whispers or an undertone, and there was nothing to do but wait. At last, I was in the front line. If I could only get back home, now what stories of war a hardened veteran could tell? And really, I thought I was a veteran. About 10 a.m., I was horrified to see an officer walking down the bank of the ravine, fully exposed to the enemy, and saying in stentorian tones, Don't be shooting out across here. We are going to send out a patrol. Shortly, I was aroused from my testament reading by a squad mate remarking, Doesn't that beat you? I asked, What? Another replied, They just walked right over the top. It was the patrol. I had missed seeing it go, but I didn't miss hearing a machine gun cut loose and then seeing a yank evidently wounded in the arm run back over the hill and make for the ravine. A moment later, a real sprinter appeared. Our boys howled with delight when he made it safely to the ditch. The other three men in the patrol did not return. When the man passed me on his way to report, I asked him what they had found out. He was a foreign birth, scared almost to death and out of breath, so I learned nothing but that they did run into a machine gun nest. I don't believe I ever saw anyone in worse fix from fear than this man was, for it seemed that every muscle of his body was twitching spasmodically and spots chased each other over his face. It seemed a pity to put these brave men through this just to learn where the hostile lines were, but it was one of war's requisitions. After the patrol, quietness reigned again. I could not but think of still Sabbath mornings like this in quiet country and small towns and the crowds of worshippers who would throng the churches over all the vast land of America in a few hours and the prayers that would be offered for the nation's defenders. Once, as I was reading, a little Catholic stopped before me and said, While you are praying, remember and ask for peace and a return to the States by Christmas. Two o'clock, and all was as quiet as the grave in our sector. Crapshooters were not at their pastime that day. Those soldiers not reading their testaments or on guard were asleep. 3.30, and the serenity was gone. The Germans were shelling us. Oh, but it was terrible. I took refuge in a small place dug out of the bank, but the protection was more imaginary than real. Bang, bang, bang went the shells all around us, who expected each moment to be blown into bits. At the cry of gas, we donned our masks. 
Bits of earth fell over me and around me, and pieces of stone blown up by the bursting shells hit my helmet with a metallic thud numbers of times. This nerve-wracking performance kept up for a half hour. Finally, the squad guard who had been bravely holding forth over time called for his relief. The man who was supposed to relieve him did not stir, so I volunteered to take his place. The platoon sergeant almost immediately called down the line to know if we were watching. It was with much pride I returned the answer, watching. Three minutes later, the barrage ceased. Instantly, the Yanks were on their feet, bayonets fixed, and everything put into readiness to repel the attack we thought imminent. And it would have been a lively time if they had come, but they didn't. Down to the right, rifles began to pop. Like a summer shower, there were a few shots now and then, gradually increasing in number until there was a perfect roar. This lasted about ten minutes, and then the volume of noise began to decrease, dying away to a few desultory shots and then silence. That is all I know of what happened to our right, as it was out of sight. I have always believed that the enemy counterattacked at the base of the salient with the intention of cutting us off and that they were foiled in their attempt. Several casualties resulted to M Company from the barrage. A runner named Barrett was killed in a singular manner. He was lying on a shelf of the ditch and a shell passed a foot or two above him and exploded against the opposite bank. Though he was not hit by the shell and his body bore no evidence of wounds, it put his name on M Company's honor roll. That night I was put on guard in no man's land with an Arkansawyer named Barry for my pal. This was the first guard duty I had ever done except that day in the ditch and a time or two on the train in the USA. One of the men we relieved said he thought he had heard a man cough about 50 yards from us. Did it put us on our mettle? Then, too, the German guards were just back of the pines on the crest of the ridge, and the flares they sent up put us in full view of the enemy if we should move while they glowed, so there was no chance for us to get lonesome. Must say... I had a delightful sleep after the guard duty. End quote. On the same day, October 5th, the 3rd Division continued attacking as well. On the left front of the division's line, 3rd Battalion, 7th Infantry, aborted an attack on Hill 253, which sits to the west of the Triangle of Woods, the unnamed one, Bois de Zogon and Bois de Cunel. The Germans dug in on this gentle rise simply dominated the surrounding open area and much of the 3rd Division's front with withering machine gun fire. Another attack in the evening brought the 7th Infantrymen to within 300 meters south of Hill 253, but it was as close as they could get. On the Marne Division's right, the 4th Infantry's lead battalions made three attacks during the day. There was no advance, and the reserve 3rd Battalion, 4th Infantry, had to be called up. Two companies from the 3rd were called up to launch a 4th attack in the evening, led by scouts. One of those scouts was Private John Lewis Barkley, and he related the events of that evening attack. Quote, the battalion had been released, 
At last, orders had come through that we were to move out to the attack. We were to start at once, under cover of the darkness. Our orders were to take Woods 250. It was apparently to be close fighting, so I exchanged my rifle for a sawed-off shotgun. I had my pistol, too, with about 35 rounds of ammunition and clips, my trench knife, and two grenades left from the raid on the gun. Our battalion moved forward slowly with frequent halts. We were trying to make no noise, and we couldn't have made any speed if we'd wanted to. It had rained so heavily that the ground was a slippery quagmire, and it was still misting. Our orders said two of our companies were to assault the woods. The other two were to constitute the support. Suddenly, a heavy rifle and automatic rifle fire opened directly ahead. I heard somebody yell, Let's go! And we ran straight forward. At the same time, the Germans on the right end of the line opened up on us with dozens of machine guns. The company on our right was having a tough time making the woods, but it was putting up a good fight. There was a lot of hand-to-hand fighting going on. I crowded up behind them, and just as I did so, a part of the enemy rushed them. They closed in to meet the attack, firing from the hip. In the mix-up that followed, one of our own crowd swung his rifle back over his head to meet an oncoming German, and the rifle got me across the side of my helmet. It only knocked me out for a moment. Almost immediately, I was back on my feet. But my shotgun was gone and there was too much going on around there for me to spend time looking for it. The fight swayed farther to the right. I saw a chance to get into a better position and started to run across a little open place toward the woods. Halfway across, I fell headlong into a hole. The wind was knocked completely out of me, and I cracked my hip against the machine gun which was mounted at the side of the hole. As I turned over and sat up, someone else slid into the hole. He stepped on my left hand. His boots were German boots, and as I moved, he made an exclamation in German. My pistol was still in my right hand, and I fired three shots as fast as I could pull the trigger. He fell toward me and pinned me against the machine gun. He was lying across my chest, and just as I'd succeeded in rolling him over my legs and getting to my feet, another fellow lit beside us. He had evidently been running. He came in head first, just as I had. I pushed my gun into his back. But when he yelled, in perfectly good New York English, Where in the hell's the rear? I took it away again. He didn't wait for an answer. He scrambled out of the hole and disappeared in the darkness. I was alone in that hole with the man I had just killed. I made sure that he was dead. Then I tried to get him up onto the ground outside. I struggled until I was dripping with cold sweat. But it was no good. He was a heavy man and so limp that I couldn't get a hold on him. I knew it would be suicide to crawl out myself and pull him over the edge. The hand-to-hand fight was over around there, but parties of Germans were still prowling over the battlefield. I could hear them talking at different times in the night. A number of machine guns were raking the field every once in a while, and now and then I heard the whine of a sniper's bullet. I looked over the machine gun in the hole where I was, but there was no hope of using it. The block had been removed and the breech cover bent so that a new block couldn't be inserted. There was nothing to do but stay in that hole and keep the German there with me. I pushed his body into a corner in a sitting position 
and wedged his heels into the dirt so that his legs would take up as little space as possible. Then I got as far away from him as I could. Whenever the noise of firing died down, the night all around was filled with cries, groans, curses. In English, in German, in languages I didn't know. Cries for water, for help, for death. Once I heard one boy ask another if he had any chewing gum. I wouldn't have minded having a little myself. Another boy babbled over and over for hours, it seemed to me. What is this war? What's this war for? What is this damned war? A faint lightning began in the sky where the sun ought to be. And then I heard a man kicking his way slowly through the brush quite near my hole. He was calling in low tones, and the words were German. I eased myself up the bank on the side toward him, my pistol ready in case he was headed my way. I'd hardly got him located to my satisfaction when someone rushed him from the brush to his left. I heard what sounded like a blow, and the German gave a frightened cry. After that, it was quiet. In the morning, I found that he'd been bayoneted straight through from side to side, just below the ribs. He was a big fellow, an officer. He'd evidently been trying to get some of his men together. It was Floyd's bayonet that had got him. Floyd, as I've said, wasn't good on long-range shooting, but at this kind of close fighting, he was hard to beat. He liked to get into a position where he could tackle his man hand-to-hand and he was always around when a raid of any kind was in prospect. In action, he usually carried his trench knife in his teeth like the Algerians, and they weren't any more dangerous than he was. The dawn, it was a very foggy dawn, came at last. Now I could see what I'd only had to listen to before, but at least I wasn't going to be alone much longer. I peeped over the edge of my hole, I could make out blurred shapes through the mist, but I couldn't be sure whether they were trees, men, or guns. It grew lighter, and the fog lifted some. I saw then that there was another hole a little way to my right. A man in it had his gun trained directly on me. A long time I sat still, watching him. Then some sound made him turn his head without disturbing the aim of his gun. The movement gave him away. It was Floyd. I called to him, and he answered. He asked me if there was room for him in my hole, and when I said yes, he started crawling over to it. He had the luger of the German officer he'd bayoneted and his silver pocket flask. It had had schnapps in it when Floyd took it, but it was empty now. He asked me if I'd searched the German I'd killed, and I said no. I didn't want to, so he did. He didn't find anything of much value or interest. The Luger and the extra clip of ammunition he turned over to me. I felt I'd stayed in that hole as long as I could, so we decided to make a break for some of our own troops. We had to go very cautiously. We could see Germans moving around just inside the woods. We knew them by the shape of their helmets. It was still too dark to make out the color of their clothes. I took a rifle from a dead American to replace my lost shotgun. He'd been shot through the side, and he looked as if he was sleeping until he noticed the bloody foam on his lips. He was lying close to a young German, 
who had a bayonet stuck through his body just under the arm and out through the other shoulder. There was a clear trail in the mud where the American had crawled over to him, and there was an American canteen gripped in his hand. End quote. Back in the 32nd Division's part of the line, the Red Arrows regiments held the line for the next days. Patrols were sent out. Divisional boundaries shifted and troops had to move along with them. Through it all, the Germans shelled and shelled and shelled and shelled the lines. The front rumbled and rocked throughout the day. It was here, just holding the line, that men died and disappeared. One of them was Private Frank Ellenberger, a doughboy with K Company, 128th Infantry Regiment. Near Epinonville on October 7th, 1918, K Company was supporting the 125th Infantry's attacks south of Romagna sur Montfaucon when German shells crashed into their line. A sergeant later reported that he saw Private Ellenberger killed instantly by fragments from a high explosive shell hit in the head. The location of Ellenberger's remains never made it to Graves Registration Services, and after the war, GRS searched twice for him. His remains were never found. You may have heard Frank Ellenberger's name in November 2019 when Jeremy Bowles came on the podcast to give a Battlefield Tour testimonial. Ellenberger was Jeremy's great-uncle, the brother of his great-grandmother, and today, Frank Ellenberger is an active case for Doughboy MIA. In the meantime, until we find them, we speak their names. There is another name we need to talk a lot more about, though. And that is John Lewis Barkley. Because that man was just wild, y'all. And you have to hear his story. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care. How to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.